Yeah, we are hanging out talking about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem this morning. And uh, initially I was thinking about this Palm Sunday as a standalone, but really it's a continuation of what we've been talking about over the last month or so as a church family, uh, which is the new covenant. And so today uh, we get the opportunity to look at the king of the new covenant. And we will see that just like many other things uh, as part of this new covenant, it's very upside down and very different um, from the world's traditional concept of what a king would be and what he would do and how he would roll into the town of Jerusalem. In light of some of the stuff that we've talked about as a church uh, recently, I, I so appreciate that you all are praying for me and for Peter and others as we're up here teaching and leading. Um, but before we jump in, can I just pray for you? Because as we've talked about, um, God cares about what happens up here, but he also is very, very much interested in what's going on up there and in all of your hearts and minds and souls as we gather together in his name and his presence. So uh, let me pray for you really fast. Ah, Lord, I am so grateful for our church family that you are faithful to meet us here week after week and that you, by your grace, through your Son and by the power of your Holy Spirit in each life, in each marriage, in each family are at work and ministering and changing and uh, just revealing more of who you are in us and through us to the world. And so I pray that this time that you would just do that, that by your Holy Spirit you would minister to us as a church family, that uh, the heavy lifting wouldn't just be happening up here, but that there would be just a work that you are doing um, in each and every person in this room and that we would just truly be um, your body, your family, uh, filled with your spirit in this time, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So now the pressure's on you guys and not on me. Um, so, so Karina read to us from the account from the Gospel of John of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And there are a few things that I thought that we should uh, call out in terms of the context of this entry into Jerusalem. Um, it's one of the... Um, parts of the story of Jesus' ministry here on earth that's recorded in all four of the gospel accounts, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and I'll be pulling some context from each of the other gospels. Um, But what we see is, if you look at the verse, Jesus is referred to in John chapter 12, verse 13, by the crowds as the king of Israel. And this is important and relevant because it's not just saying, hey, you are just any old king, but it's a very specific king that they had been waiting for for a very long time. Um, The term king of Israel, in other gospel accounts, it actually says son of David. And as we will talk about, this son of David or the king of Israel would be the king that was promised to the nation of Israel and to the world of this new covenant um, that we were talking about. So imagine, if you will, as he's riding in and people are taking these palm branches and they're falling down and laying them in front of him and crying out to him. Uh, This scene is really the scene of um, a king who had come in and who had conquered on the battlefield and would be received with this reception of praise and worship um, as a conquering king. And so Jesus is riding in, all of this is happening. And so kind of picture in your minds like a Lord of the Rings after a big battle that they've won, riding in triumphantly into the city. That's why this is often referred to as Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem, 
But that's the concept that's going on. The background to that is if you go way, way back to the Old Testament, the nation of Israel did not have a king. In fact, God was their king. And so God had brought them out of Egypt where they were in captivity, led them through the wilderness and eventually into the promised land. And in the promised land, they had judges who would kind of help discern God's heart and God's will for them. Um, But they didn't need a king because God served as their king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, though, the children of Israel looked around at the other nations and they said, you know what, we would like another person, a man, to be our king instead of God. And so they go to Samuel, whose sons are serving as judges, and they say, we want you to give us a king. And God says to Samuel, okay, I will allow the nation of Israel to have this king as they want, um, but know, Samuel, that they're not just rejecting you and your sons as judges, but they're actually rejecting me as God in asking for a human king. And so as we see that play out over the Old Testament and through Israel's history, uh, what would happen is uh, the first king would be Saul, and then King David, whom many of you know and we just referred to, and then his son Solomon. And then after Solomon, there would actually be kind of a civil war with the nation of Israel where the northern ten tribes would have a king named Jeroboam, And the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, would have a different king named Rehoboam. And they would kind of go their separate ways. There would be this division. As you look at the kings of those two nations, the northern ten tribes of Israel had nothing but bad kings. So as you're kind of reading through the historical books of the Old Testament, you just see kind of wicked, ungodly king after wicked, ungodly king. And eventually the northern ten tribes go into, um, well, they're conquered by the Assyrians eventually, and they're defeated and they're scattered. So as they place their trust in a human king, they've had all of these other nations who are their enemies, and eventually Assyria is the nation who conquers them. The southern two tribes last a little bit longer, and if you look at their kings, that's where you see some of those kings that you would maybe call good, and there's kind of a mix of good and bad kings in their history. Uh, But the challenge is, each time there was a good king, They would either go so long doing a good job and then they would make a mistake and kind of fall away from the Lord or they would do a good job and they would die and then their son would be a bad king and they would stray from God. Uh, The nation would fall into idolatry and this kind of up and down cycle that you would expect with these human leaders. And then eventually they too fall into captivity to the Babylonians and become essentially irrelevant um, as a nation at least in terms of their militaristic uh, political presence at that time. And so at the end of the Old Testament, what you find is that they too have fallen captive to these other nations. And so the outcome of all of these different kings is division of the nation. It is idolatry, turning away from God and turning towards other gods. And it is captivity. And so as Jesus rides into Jerusalem... They are currently under the dominion of the Roman Empire. And so just like they've had all of these enemies throughout their history, the Canaanites, the Philistines, um, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, uh, at this time, they're under the dominion of Rome. And so their, their desire to put their trust in a human king has led them astray. And if you track this, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where they originally made the decision that they did not want 
to allow God to have dominion and rule and reign over them, but that they instead wanted to put their trust in themselves. So that's the context in which we are looking at Jesus as the son of David. The good news is in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, King David is on the throne, and he has uh, at that time conquered many of their um, enemy nations, and there's a time of mostly peace, and he's sitting in his temple on his throne, and he's looking out at God, uh, which at the time was kind of typified by this Ark of the Covenant, and he's going, boy, God does not have a home. I want to build God a home, a temple where he can dwell. And initially, he's told, yes, you can do that, um, but then he's corrected, and the Lord comes back, and he says, you know what, David, um, you have bloody hands from from all of this war over the years, you are not going to build me a house, but instead I am going to build you a house. And from your lineage, from your family, there will come a king and he will rule and reign forever. He will be an everlasting king. He will have a new and everlasting kingdom. And I will call him son and he will call me father. And so that's referred to in 2 Samuel as the Davidic covenant but it was a promise to the nation of Israel and to all people that even though they had rejected God as their king, he would send a king who would be the one who would establish his kingdom forever. And he would do away from all of this division and uh, just the dominion of other people having captivity over them and even the captivity that came from their rebellion against God in their own hearts. And he would send this king to establish that kingdom. And so... When these people are welcoming Jesus, they have gone for hundreds and hundreds of years, and actually if you look at their whole history, thousands of years in this position of knowing that they longed for a king, but also looking ahead going, okay, eventually this promised king will come and he will set us free. And so that's, that's what they're doing, and that's why it's this big deal that all of these people are falling down and greeting Jesus as this son of David, as this king of Israel. So that is the king of the new covenant. Um, But also as part of this kingdom, uh, if you'll switch the next slide, there is another prophecy that this king would be a deliverer for the people. So it's not just that he would restore that dominion or that rule of God over the nation of Israel and over people, uh, but it is that they would be set free. And so John chapter 12, verse 15, when they're crying out to to Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem, they quote this this seemingly obscure verse from Zechariah chapter 9 that says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so it's pretty unique, right? If you think of this, again, Lord of the Rings type triumphal entry, that Jesus comes in riding on a little donkey. And um, most people point out the humility of this, and that is part of the context, if you look back at Zechariah, is the humility of this particular king and deliverer. Um, But even more so, if you look back at Zechariah chapter 9, is that you will know this deliverer, this promised deliverer of the new covenant, by the fact that he rides in not on a giant war horse, but that he rides in on this little donkey. And... Zechariah chapter 9 actually lists a bunch of the opposing enemy nations of the nation Israel 
and says, this, this is going to be your deliverance from your enemies, but this is uniquely how you're going to identify this deliverer, this king. And so uh, it would be like saying, uh, you know, we are going to have a guest today, and it's a very special guest, and you're going to recognize them because they have this uh, blue ribbon that they wear. And so you'd be looking for that blue ribbon to go, okay, that's our, that's our honored guest. And in this case, it's saying, no, you'll know the deliverer, the king, when you see him, because he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and not a war horse or anything else. And it's a very humble, um, kind of strange and unique way of, of coming onto the scene and being announced as king. And so that's what's happen- happening in Zechariah. And that, too, has relevance, because... Captivity had been an issue for the nation of Israel for a long time, right? So they were captive in Egypt to another nation, and then they were set free by God. And then they would fall captive to another nation, and they would be set free from God. But they've been at war for years and years with these enemy nations. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, they're going, okay, this is the king who's going to set us free. And in their minds, they would have thought, we are currently under the dominion of Rome and we are going to be set free from this political oppression that is, that is the reality that we face right now. And so um, the heart of the problem, though, is, is that over the years, as they would rebel, like we talked about, and as they would follow these human kings, they would fall into idolatry, and then they would literally fall into oppression of these other nations. And so... Uh, at the heart of this is their own rebellion. Leviticus 26 actually said this is the way it was going to happen. It said, uh, at that time under the law, which was part of the old covenant, if you follow God's commands, you're going to have success and you're going to win all these battles and your enemies are going to flee before you. And with just a few soldiers, you're going to beat a whole bunch of soldiers. Um, But if you don't, if you disobey God's commands, then you're going to fall into slavery and bondage and captivity. And that's what happened. It was actually literal captivity and bondage. Now, we know that these things, the captivity and bondage, though, were not just because of, of the political situation or because of the armies, but that it was actually the, the condition of the human heart, the human soul that would fall captive to their rebellion against God, that in their uh, walking away from God's commands and not following him, not being under his rule and reign, that they would actually be entrapped and ensnared by the sin that's in their very own hearts. And so as we talk about this king and this kingdom, and as we talk about this freedom from captivity, we're not just talking about the practical uh, deliverance from Rome, but there was something deeper and greater that God would want to do um, that we will see the crowd did not recognize. So ultimately, Jesus would be the rejected king because as people had thought about it over the years, they were longing for deliverance as a nation so that they wouldn't be captive literally from these other nations. And they were longing for a king who would establish God's kingdom forever and that they would have this concept that, okay, we're no longer going to be oppressed. Our circumstances are going to get better. We aren't going to have these other people who are wicked, ruling over us and ruining our lives. The reality is Jesus did not come to set them free from the Romans at this time. 
the reality is that by the end of the week, the Romans would have uh, crucified and buried Jesus, put him in a tomb, laid a stone in front of that tomb, and put a Roman seal that would essentially be like, done deal, we've overcome this supplanter of our power, and they would put soldiers outside of his tomb to guard it. The reality is that the Pharisees, who were crying out to Jesus in other accounts of this story, saying, silence your disciples who are praising you and singing out Hosanna and calling him this coming king. They would tell them, be quiet. And Jesus would say, well, if they're quiet, even the rocks will cry out and declare me as king and savior and deliverer. And yet, in that moment, by the end of the week, those same Pharisees had championed his death. They had put him to trial falsely, and he had gone to the cross, rejected by them. The reality is that the people who cried out, save us now, Hosanna, that's what that means. Save us now. You're the king. You're the deliverer. Save us. By the end of the week, they would see him upon the cross, and they would say, save yourself. If you're really the king, if you're really the deliverer and the savior of humanity, save yourself. Come down from that cross, not realizing that he would have to go to that cross in order to save us. And his disciples, too, who, who were following him and who were kind of piecing this together as it happened, going, okay, yeah, he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey just like Zacharias said he would. Would betray him, would deny him, would abandon him. And Jesus would find himself essentially alone upon the cross and then would be buried in the grave. And if you think about this, this is like the culmination of humanity's rebellion against God. He actually came down to earth and visited us as the promised king and as the promised deliverer and savior. And we, because it wasn't what we expected, and because we still had that rebellion in our hearts, whether disciples or Romans or Pharisees or everyone in between, we rejected our king. And we put him upon the cross. We, we placed upon his head a crown of thorns. And on the cross it would read, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And so you look at the situation and go, man, that's, that's brutal. So on Palm Sunday, while we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry, it is the first part of, of a whole week that would happen that would end up with Jesus upon the cross and in a tomb. And we'll talk on Easter more about what happens on that Sunday, on that resurrection on Easter that we celebrate. But um, there's one more element about this triumphal entry that I think we need to see, not just Jesus as the promised king of the new covenant or the promised deliverer of the new covenant, but Jesus as the sacrifice of the new covenant. So uh, at that time, it, it, there was uh, a Passover feast, as you, as you heard us read earlier. And so this Passover feast was actually um, one of three feasts that would happen during this week-long period. So there was the Passover feast that we'll talk about in just a minute. There was the Feast of Unleavened Bread later in the week. And there was the Feast of First Fruits that would be celebrated at the end of the week. But people would gather in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts and uh, the Passover feast in particular, look back to Exodus chapter 12, which is when the nation of Israel were captive in Egypt. And remember, God sent plagues on Egypt so that Pharaoh would set them free from that captivity. And part of that 
was this Passover judgment where God would send the spirit of death to take away the lives of firstborns of each family. But God warned the nation of Israel, if you take the blood of a lamb and you spread its blood, you sacrifice it, and you put its blood on your doorposts, and then you have this feast, the spirit of death would pass over your house. And through that judgment, eventually, Pharaoh would set the nation of Israel free, and they would go into, across the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and eventually into the promised land. And so this feast of Passover is remembering the lamb that was sacrificed in order to set the people free from their captivity. Once they were uh, in the wilderness, you'll remember Moses went up to Mount Sinai and God gave them this, this law, this Levitical or Mosaic law, and there were these 613 commands that they would follow. But part of that system was that they would have a sacrificial system for their sins, for their rebellion, and so that they would bring these spotless lambs and other animals to the altar of the tabernacle or to the temple eventually, and they would be sacrificed for the, the people. So each individual would have to come with their own sacrifice, and it would be as if the sin of that individual would be transferred upon that, that lamb, and that lamb would be sacrificed for that individual's transgressions and sins. And they would have to do this over and over again because they would keep sinning, they would keep rebelling because there was brokenness and rebellion in their hearts. But this was a foreshadow of a sacrifice that would be lasting, right? Those, those sacrifices were good as a symbol of God's forgiveness of those sins. But ultimately, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs can't take away sins forever because there was still a, a brokenness inside that wasn't corrected. So people would sacrifice, and then they would go out and rebel again. And then they would sacrifice again, and then they would go out and rebel again. The good news is, just like there was a promised king that would come as part of this new covenant, and there was this promised deliverer that would come as part of this new covenant, uh, there was also a promised sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would come as part of this new covenant. And in Isaiah 53, many of you are familiar with this passage, uh, we hear uh, the prophet Isaiah filled with the Holy Spirit saying, here's this lamb that's going to come. So I thought I would just read it for us so we have some context this morning. Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And it goes on and on, but it's saying, hey, this king who's going to come, this deliverer who will come as part of this new covenant that God would make with his people, 
uh, he's also going to be the Lamb of God. And so when you remember Jesus initially coming onto the scene and John the Baptist seeing him come from afar off and crying out, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is what he's referring to. Is that while those sacrifices were insufficient of the Old Testament, that there would come one who would be a sacrifice once and for all for the sins of humanity. And he would set us free, not just from sin and the rebellion that's in our own hearts, but he would set us free to know him and follow him as the one true King of Kings. And so as we think about Palm Sunday and we we get excited to celebrate this week, Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday, this is the context in which we celebrate our King. And uh, as you look at the New Covenant, the upside down, inside out, everything's different under the New Covenant, uh, we see a king who came not to conquer the Romans, but to conquer sin, death, and hell in the grave. We see a king who establishes his rule and reign in the hearts of his people. So he didn't just come to reign politically, but he came to rule and reign in every single one of our hearts in every single one of our marriages or families, ministries or vocations, in this church and in the church around the world, Jesus came to rule and reign in the hearts of his people. And so it is a different kingdom that he has established. And our king has established an eternal kingdom that starts now. So, so Jesus actually was coming in this day that we studied in our passage to establish his kingdom through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. He would then send his Holy Spirit to live inside of his church And this kingdom is an eternal kingdom that has already started. And for us, we are, uh, we who have received Jesus as Savior and King and Redeemer, we are now part of that kingdom. And we get to live and follow him as King as it was always meant to be. Our Deliverer sets us free from sin, rebellion, captivity, and destruction within. So while the people were looking for uh, deliverance from their circumstances and from the political oppression of the Romans, that isn't what God came to do at that time. There will come a day when God comes as king and sets everything straight, but at this time, in this day and age, even in 2018, God doesn't promise that he will deliver us from our circumstances or from the oppression of the people around us. Uh, No political leader or human king can solve that problem for us, but Jesus did come to rule and reign in our hearts so that we might be a part of his kingdom and he might fill us with his Holy Spirit. He sets us free to live in his kingdom by his grace and by the Spirit. And the beauty of this is not just that we get to enjoy that today, but as we look ahead, that one day we will be with him in heaven, and we will see him as the lamb that was slain, and we will see him as the king of kings, and we will fall down at his feet and worship him. In this heavenly scene in Revelation chapter 5, it's actually Revelation chapters 4 and 5, You see these people, elders and creatures and angels, all gathered around the throne of God. And you see Jesus there as if he was a lamb that had just been slain. So imagine this, that that one day when we are all in heaven, we will actually see our Savior face to face. And we will see the scars as if they had just occurred. And the sacrifice and the price that had been paid for us as that promised king and sacrifice And there will be crowns placed upon the elders' heads in that scene. And they will take those crowns and they will cast them before the feet of Jesus. And they will say, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. That's our king. That's the one we celebrate and we remember on Palm Sunday that he came to be rejected, that he actually came to give his own life so that we might live. And he came to replace the sacrifice that we used to have to give for our sins to God. God actually came and sacrificed himself for us. And we are restored not just to be free from sin and forgiven from sin and to be part of his kingdom, but we actually get to know the king. And he actually lives inside each one of our hearts. So he can be enthroned upon each of our hearts and souls and in each of our lives. And we can allow his reign by his grace and by his spirit, overwhelmed by his love, to take us over. So as we um, wrap up, we're going to come to the tables as we often do uh, and just remember him. Right, it, It's the price that was paid, and it's beautiful, and we, we appreciate so much the blessings that come from knowing our king, the forgiveness of sins, the, the new life that we have, the freedom from captivity within our own souls. But even more than that, this morning, let's come to the tables and remember him. Right, He is our greatest treasure. He is the king. We get him as part of this deal. And um, as Peter was sharing, he is good. And he is love. And he is worthy of all glory and honor and blessing and praise. Amen. God, we love you so much. Because you loved us first. Because you are worthy of our love. Um, it's no amazing thing that we love you. You are, you are awesome and majestic and, and mighty and good. Um, but it is amazing that you love us the way that you do, that you demonstrated that love by coming as a man, by living a perfect life, and then coming and giving of yourself for us, and then ascending into heaven and sending your Holy Spirit. God, we are grateful that you did not stay in the grave, but that you have overcome sin, death, and hell, and therefore we have new life in you. We get to know you as king and follow you as king and worship you as king. So we do that now in Jesus' name. Amen.